Welcome to the Slate Political Gabfest for April 19th, 2018, the Slime Ball Edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. We are here at CBS News Radio HQ with our host, who is also the host of CBS This Morning, who is so kindly letting us come and squat here, John Dickerson. Hello, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. And it's not just my generosity, it's the generosity of the entire CBS family. I love the CBS family. Emily We feel warmly embraced by the CBS family. Do you think we're the black sheep of the CBS family? Uh, We're like the adopted children? I don't think they notice us. I think we're like the third cousin stepchildren off in the corner. Who showed up. We showed up for Thanksgiving and no one's quite sure "Um, why we're here. Okay, here's a plate. (laughs) Who are you? (laughs) Maybe we can marry someone important at CBS. You, we could work on we that, although we're both already it. married, which is a slight problem. We could offer our children up to be married. How about that? That's good. An, a, an alliance an alliance with CBS. In any case, we have an actual gab fest this week. On this week's show, the continuing fallout from the raid on the president's private lawyer, notably the news that Sean Hannity was also a client of Michael Cohen. Then Jim Comey tours the universe and beyond, pushing his new book, condemning the president then the starbucks arrest travesty what can be done to eliminate the racism and mistreatment against african-americans who are customers at private businesses plus we're gonna have cocktail chatter and a slate plus segment to be named later and we are just two weeks out from our st louis show We are going to be live at the Sheldon Concert Hall on Wednesday, May 2nd. There's still a few tickets left at slate.com slash live. And we have a great guest, Jason Kander, the Missouri politician, political activist, generally all around interesting and admirable fellow will be with us at that show. So go to slate.com slash live for tickets. Can I just say how nice it was of the Missouri governor to get himself into such hot water right in time for our show. We can talk about Eric Greitens like forever when we're in St. Louis. Yes, I need to learn how to pronounce his name. I think that's right. He'd only be in more hot water if he were in an actual hot tub, which may be where this story is heading anyway. I'm sure he's been in hot tubs. Although it's, it's hard to punch somebody when you're in a hot tub and also you can't take nude photos that are that show up well in hot tubs because there's all that water. So he might avoid them. He likes he likes dry land. It could be it could be the case. I think this ropes. is I think this is a vast landscape for us to explore. Any case, come on on May second, slate.com slash live, Sheldon Concert Hall in St. Louis. On Monday, Jaws fell. Phones were dropped at the news that the third client of presidential lawyer Michael Cohen was in fact Sean Hannity the Fox News commentator and Trump uh, ally, supporter, advisor. Setting aside the weird fact that Cohen only has three clients, because Emily, who is not even a lawyer, probably has... You probably have three clients, Emily. (laughs) You probably have at least three clients. (laughs) Uh, It was kind of stunning to discover that Hannity, who had defended Cohen and who had attacked the raid so passionately, was Cohen's own client. Um, But was it really astounding? That's the question. It wasn't really... I'm having trouble, like taking sufficient umbrage at this story. Like, it seems highly unsurprising that Hannity would have gotten legal advice from Donald Trump's lawyer because they're pals. And not surprising at all that he wouldn't have disclosed it on the air and that Fox wouldn't care. It just seems like, of course, this is the way it is. Well, and the only one of of Trump's lawyers that Hannity's hired. Jay Sekulow also worked. And, and I'll take, I'll, I'll, I won't get up there. I'll go all the way to the depot, which is to say it's a feature, not a bug, which is 
like for Fox News, for Sean Hannity to, to be to have the president's lawyer is a I would think, and I'm not. I'm not until they all wind up in the slammer. No, no, it's but, great, but I think this is great. His job. He's not a. He's not a journalist. He is an advocate for the president. Um, pr- arguably, the president's strongest advocate. Period, uh, and so not only, of course, would he have these kinds of relationships, but the relationships that he has with both the president and the president's lawyer would seem to me to be uh, in furtherance of his central goal, which is to be uh, the strongest, most forceful advocate for the president and the worldview uh, that he puts forward. So, And let's not, it's sort of helpful in the sense, like, let's not pretend otherwise. Let's not pretend that Sean Hannity is not a spokesperson for Donald Trump, that there is any separation well, from, between the two of them. That is the interesting part, which is if, if I were right, and I'm not, I'm, I'm seriously trying to, if I were right, then why would he not have, why would he not have boasted about it? Right. If, if my theory of the case is right, then it would seems to me to be something that Sean Hannity would want to boast about. Right. On the other hand, if you can defend Cohen um, with a little bit of distance, if you don't have to tell your viewers that you have a personal stake in protecting his reputation, then you're a more effective advocate for him. Right. That's a good point. Should, should Fox have punished or condemned Hannity? There was not even the, the, the lightest tap on a knuckle. There was not the 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 mildest the mildest little lash of a of a, a leaf of grass whipping him, a blade of grass whipping him. Should they have punished him? I I don't know, but um, Alan Dershowitz Said criticized on him on air to his face, which I thought was a uh, um, commendable, not on the like, is he right or is he wrong, but just on the kind of intellectual honesty grounds. I thought that was interesting. I suppose, although, can we not give Alan Dershowitz too much credit because he is really um, embarrassing himself in many ways on Fox what, of what, late. How, how is what Hannity does different from the lapdoggery that was prevalent, especially in the early Obama years? There yeah. was a lot of media hugging and kissing of Obama and, and obviously uh, sympathy for Obama. How is this different? But was there anyone whose show was devoted to being in the tanks to the degree that we see here, where you're promoting false narratives, you're ignoring important news when it's not um, in your guys' favor? I don't favor. remember. I, I can't think of anything that's parallel. Was, but it, maybe was there I'm stuff on MS, MSNBC that was as uh, biased as this? I doubt it was as biased, but I think it's degree, not, not kind. kind. Um, I don't know. Uh, Interesting question. Don't I mean? Uh, I think we can all. If we had the data in front of us, that would be re- interesting to go through. I want to just go back to your point, Emily, um, which is the legal part of this. Which is, it's one thing. Yes, it's clear he's the president's booster, but but the it, the fact that he has legal business of some kind with the lawyer. I don't know. I'm trying to see if there's a different category here, which is not which is not about support for the president. We all know he's a supporter of the president. But since the topic was, I mean, certainly intellectually, forgetting boosterism, intellectually, people should know because the specific topic you're talking about is is what's being found in the in the office. Yes, he and had since a giant trouble, conflict of interest. Yeah. If you're following he had a dog any in the sort fight. of... Right, he had a dog in the fight. If you're following any rules of journalism, you would disclose that. But he's not following the rules of journalism as we were just agreeing. So once we're in that territory, 
maybe there is something useful in having that be clear. Like Fox is not holding him to any journalistic standards. And now we see that. So we actually asked uh, GapFest listeners for their questions this week about this topic. Let's listen to this question from Nydia. If Hannity has said he never retained Cohen as his attorney, does that mean none of his communications are privileged, leaving Cohen with two clients? If so, if Trump's dealings with Cohen were not in his capacity as lawyer, are they also not privileged? Thank you. Uh, Trump's dealings with Cohen, his lawyers are certainly going to argue that they are privileged, right? Now, if Cohen wasn't really acting like a lawyer, then the government, the prosecutors are going to argue that like, no, if you're being a fixer, that's not real legal work. That's part of why we wanted to see all these communications. And they're going to have an argument about that, about where the parameters are. The the Hannity um, Cohen relationship is sort of perfectly described where Hannity is essentially trying to have his cake and eat it too by saying, oh, I had very minimal contact. We barely spoke. I barely knew you. Oh, but maybe actually like I did hand you 10 bucks and so we were covered. And it, I should also add, you don't have to pay someone to establish an attorney-client relationship. So Cohen's lawyer is arguing that they did have that um, as a way of privileging the communication. So the tension here is between Hannity wanting to keep Cohen at arm's length now that he is being investigated in um, for a, a, a variety of crimes, but on the other hand, wanting to keep their communications confidential. And we should note that the reason one might be embarrassed, and I'm not suggesting this is the reason specifically that Sean Hannity is, but you might find yourself in a position to be embarrassed if Cohen's other two clients used his services for the purposes of fixing their relationship with Playboy bunnies. Can I go back to one part of the story that is bothering me? I'm not sure it was proper or a good idea for the judge to that was my next question. out um, Hannity as uh, Cohen's client in open court. I mean, so the fact that there is an attorney-client relationship is not in itself privileged, but, but usually we treat it as a sensitive piece of information that you don't go around broadcasting. And there were certainly other ways for Judge Wood to find this out and for the prosecutors to make their arguments that didn't involve him being outed in that moment. I don't really think that was a good idea. I I totally agree. There was a very interesting National Review piece by Andrew McCarthy suggesting that this was not the way to go about it, that that they could have, uh, it could have been disclosed to Wood, could have been disclosed to the judge. As we say, in chambers. In chambers. And actually, the thing I didn't understand about it is that Wood seemed to have asked the lawyer, you can say it to me or you can write it down for me, right? And then the lawyer lawyer just blurted it it out. But what would have happened had he just simply written it down? Would Wood then have necessarily broadcast it to the world or could Wood have chosen to keep it close to the vest? She could have chosen to keep it close. And I wonder if the lawyer just in the moment, you know, people make spontaneous wrong decisions in a moment like that in open court. Um, And it does seem to have had these... Well, I guess it's had consequences. I'm not even really sure other than everyone talking about it, it has had any consequences. Well, it's it's pejorative to Hannity. It make, does make Hannity, it suggests he has something to hide. It suggests that maybe he's fathering children with, with uh, Playboy bunnies. On the other hand, though, if he's, gonna, seems to be. if he's going to keep expressing outrage, outrage about this raid without disclosing the relationship, for, for those reasons, the public did deserve to know. So there's this funny, I don't think that was the right way for the information to have surfaced, but given the role Hannity is playing, it does seem like we deserve to know about that. Emily, let me ask you another legal question, which is to say if Cohen's lawyer 
um, inflated the relationship with Sean Hannity for the purposes of trying to, to to win this debate over. And the debate was over whether Cohen got to look at basically the information that was taken from his hotel office and house or where he lives. Um, could you get in trouble in court for pretending there was a relationship where there wasn't because Sean Hannity says there was no relationship? Well, they were talking to each other, so I doubt it. I mean, two things. This argument that um, Cohen's lawyers tried to make about we're going to look at everything first before the prosecutors do, I mean, that was ridiculous. Like, they weren't going to win that argument. Come on, please. The government had already met a a high standard for conducting the raid in the first place. Um, And then the attorney-client privilege runs to the client. That is to say, um, it's really not Cohen's to claim it's Trump's or Hannity's or Brady's. Brady? Yeah, I like Brady. So that is just like a wrinkle here. I mean, if if Hannity really, really said, I've never spoken to you in my life, you're not my lawyer, then I think that could be problematic. Certainly not for getting in trouble, but for Cohen actually getting to protect any of the communications. That's why Hannity didn't go that far. And also, we know, I think everybody knows that the attorney-client privilege doesn't... um, doesn't exist if you use the lawyer in the furtherance of a crime. So yes. if you say, hold my gun while you're robbing the bank, you, there's no attorney-client privilege there. But if the lawyer, if the client, Donald Trump, says he didn't know anything about this agreement, then can there have been an attorney-client privilege, an agreement that was made in his name that he knew nothing about? I mean, their relationship is more generally covered by the privilege, and we don't usually go around like that specifically picking little things out of it. The the issue, though, with the contract that Trump claims he didn't know about is like the contract was supposed to be between him and Daniels. And so if there was no meeting of the minds because he knew nothing about it, it's hard to see how the contracts felt. But I also don't even I mean, I understand why these contracts and these non-disclosure agreements matter for Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal. Karen McDougal has now gotten out of her contract because they were facing legal exposure. But I feel like these women have already told their stories. I mean, maybe Stormy has some more to say, but I'm not sure we're really going to learn much more for the end of these NDAs. So the thesis about the Cohen investigation seems to be that it may have removed the ability of the possibility that Trump can stop this investigation because it's now no, it's not simply with Mueller directly in the Justice Department or in Justice Department purview, but it's out in the Southern District of New York. Those are the prosecutors who are working on the case. That is a famously independent uh, prosecutor's office. I mean, does the, the the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District does report to the Attorney General and and can be fired and a new one could come in and totally change what they're doing. But they call themselves the sovereign district. It's the sovereign district. And there are no parameters. There are no limits on this investigation. There's no letter stipulating any boundaries to it. Right. So, so is it, do you think, Emily, that that is in fact the case that it has now escaped the barnyard and is out, you know, roaming around? I do think that is the case. And I think it changes the significance of the debate over whether Trump, um, should, in his own view, fire Mueller um, or Rod Rosenstein for that matter. And it also suggests that the exposure that Trump is facing is, uh, you know, multiplied by several fold because these prosecutors could look into anything. John, Mitch McConnell this week refused to bring to the Senate floor a bill that would somewhat protect Mueller in the event he was fired by the president. Uh, A bill that Democrats and Lindsey Graham and I think Tom Tillis, uh, another Republican senator have been pushing the bill does seem it's going to get a vote in the judiciary committee but mcconnell's not going to let the full senate vote on it there's some outrage from the left about this but can i just 
set this question up by saying I kind of sympathize with McConnell. He's taking the bullet on this. He's just he's sort of saying Trump's never going to sign it. It might not be constitutional. The House is not going to pass it. Why should I force my colleagues to take a really difficult vote that's not going to have any effect anyway? So I'm not going to do it. Right. That'll just anger the president. And it'll, uh, yeah, I think that's I think you probably um, wait a second. I mean, that's why he's doing it. Yeah. But you think that's OK? I mean, I think do I think that McConnell is just being realistic in the face of of a very difficult situation? Yes, I think it's totally comprehensible. Realistic, and also yeah, of course the, he's being realistic. And also, I don't think Democrats should actually want this bill because I think the mo- the main thing it would do would would, as John said, would just be like sticking a, a spear in in Trump. It's a, oh, it's, pro- I think it's a provocation. This is totally bogus. What you're arguing, I completely disagree. It w- it's a provocation. Who cares? Let's provoke the president when he's tr- about to do, or con- contemplating doing something that is. Utterly unacceptable. It's important for the second branch of government to stand up and make that clear. And in fact, Trump is sensitive to these exact kinds of provocations, or we could just say, like, you know, it's standing up to the bully. But I I think for the purposes of McConnell's position, I think you obviously don't want to poke the president when you need him for the elections. I think from the separation of powers and Congress— slowly waking from its supine posture on a variety of different things. I think when the president repeatedly and openly noodles the idea of firing these people who are investigating his behavior on a range of things and and the behavior of his associates, I think it is a perfectly reasonable for for Congress at least to engage with the idea. And and also, I'm I mean, with you. The, I agree, it's an Emily. obvious play. He's playing yeah, yeah. to the base, yeah. right? Like, I get yeah. it. It's good for him, yeah. but it's not good for the country. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. And I, as somebody who is just so dismayed by by Congress's inaction and, and difference and, and inability to do anything, this is yet another example of it that is being made manifest. So, yeah, you're right. We'll give this as a good example of when we've changed your mind. All right, last question on this topic, Emily, which is that Trump has now apparently or seems to be backing away from any plan to testify or to speak to Mueller and his investigators. Can he agree not to testify, number one? Number two, if he does decide not to testify, what are the steps that are likely to happen? He can decide not to testify, and then Mueller has to decide whether to challenge um, that decision by the president or not. Mueller has very good grounds. He, I think, would win the fight in the Supreme Court based on the precedent we have from the Nixon and Clinton era. But it's not a slam dunk, and it would be a big public confrontation. And Mueller has been thus far trying to avoid um, exactly those kinds of battles. It would be portrayed by conservative media as a very partisan move to make. From the reporting, it doesn't seem at all clear that Mueller is planning to challenge it if Trump decides not to do the interview. I also feel like this why was... Why wouldn't he? Why, why not? Maybe he doesn't really need it that much. I mean, maybe he has so much other evidence about the, about this question of corrupt intent in terms of um, obstruction of justice, either exonerating Trump or um, implicating him that he this is like sort of um, checking the boxes thing. Sometimes talking to the principal person is like something you do at the end for kind of pro forma reasons, not because you actually are trying to learn anything. Maybe we're in that land. So. Before we uh, move on, actually, there's just a point about Hannity that I wanted to go back to. Sorry. One of the things that I find so disturbing about Hannity's refusal to have admitted, not his refusal to have said he was Cohen's client, but his shamelessness about it afterwards, 
I, I just feel like the shamelessness, that the main thing that has happened in the world in the last couple of years is the rise of shamelessness. The social opprobrium uh, is one of the most powerful tools. Social opprobrium is much more powerful than laws most of the time. Most of the reasons that we don't do things is not because there's a law against it, but because we'd be embarrassed or ashamed to admit it in front of our friends and family or feel that we would be humiliated by it. And if, if that stops being a tool, if people refuse to feel shame, either because there's a team, they know their team will support them or because they're a narcissist, it really undermines the whole fabric of society in ways that I didn't quite realize until we got into this point. And it's contagious. Yes. Um, I mean, it spreads, uh, I've, it's been extraordinary to watch the, the, things that people will say to protect the tribe. And and I think one has to be specific here. The talk about private moral behavior in the context of the Clinton years, Mike Pence, for example, said that the president's private behavior was disqualifying um, because the president is a moral example for the country. So the situations may not be analogous. Certainly the president's relationship while he was in office is not the same. President Clinton's relationship in office is not the same as President Trump's behavior before. But it, that uh, distinction between the two should not cause everyone to go mute entirely. Um, and that's just one of the many different ways. There are also, that's a sin of omission, but then there are sins of commission where people who used to feel shame when they said something out loud they knew not to be true that barrier has has dropped, and it's dropped for for a variety of people in politics in a way that is still has the capacity to surprise me. You know, one thing I wonder about as we head toward the 2018 election. So, just imagine for a moment a world in which the Republicans pay a real price at the ballot box, which may not happen, but imagine it does. There are going to be so many possible explanations for that that things like you know this kind of lack of shame or. Scott Pruitt and his crazy spending habits or Ben Carson's super expensive table, like all of these things that were disqualifying, right, have not disqualified a variety of Trump officials. And it's going to be really hard to know whether that's the reason that the party went down, if in fact that's what happens. If they do. That's also a big big if. if. I mean, if they don't, imagine how much worse it could be also. All right. Before we end the segment, I want to thank listeners who wrote in with comments and questions for us about this segment. It was really fun uh, to get your very interesting questions. And uh, we look forward to doing this again in the future and keep doing this and getting uh, questions from you that will excite our brains. And you can also look at the the conversation that sparks on Twitter and over on Facebook. Twitter is at Slate GabFest and Facebook is facebook.com slash GabFest. Uh, all right. So Slate Plus members get bonus segments on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts. And this week, we're going to talk about the death of First Lady Barbara Bush, the wife of George H.W. Bush, the mother of George W. Bush, the champion of fake pearls, the very tart-tongued and excellently interesting woman. Slate.com slash GabFest Plus will get you a membership in Slate Plus. This episode of the GapFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins, and even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating 
your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame. And I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Slimeball Jim Comey hit the circuit this weekend. He kicked off the promotional campaign for his new book, A Higher Loyalty, with a long sit-down with ABC's George Stephanopoulos on Sunday, followed by an endless round of interviews everywhere else with everyone. We appear to be the only outlet he's not speaking to this week. I don't know if we asked. Maybe we should have asked. I think he's not. I think he's no longer going to do, be doing the interview with Cats and Ammo. Oh. Cats and Ammo? It's a very niche pub- publication. I uh, object to the picking up of Slimeball. I feel like we oh, do not was, need to I do Trump's bidding That was supposed to be ironizing in the extreme. I know, but it just gets it into everyone's brain. We're constantly like doing the work of the bad nicknaming for our president. Um. Well, that's actually gets to sort of one of the big points about the the Comey kickoff before we get to the substance of his book, which I would like us to get to, but I'm going to get to the theater of it first. So the principal criticism of the right and the left is that Comey's has a love or one principal criticism, Comey's love of limelight and his sanctimony are combining to get the better of him. And he's made himself a little bit Trump-like that even though he is himself clearly a truthful and ethical person, the mere fact of him playing this game at all puts puts him in the same room as Trump or in the same on the so, same well, spectrum and zone as Trump and therefore he is just like Trump and therefore therefore everyone's the same. When of course he's not. Well and but but in in a way that criticism that you just articulated echoes the challenge he faced challenge he faced when he was FBI director, which is how do you anticipate, understand the environment in which you are about to do something? And does the environment in which you're trying to do something swamp what you're actually trying to do, which was what which is what he was wrestling with uh, with with the Hillary Clinton decisions he made, both to have the press conference in which he explained his decision not to move prosecutor and then his decision ten days before the election. I don't know. I sort of feel like I haven't learned anything new from the substance of the book. It's been wholly unsatisfying to listen to Comey make excuses for the poor decisions he made. I think that which he, poor decisions around the Hillary Clinton. There's a passage in the book about how him objecting to the term mass incarceration that I thought was like ridiculous as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, his excuse making about his breaking of the rules in publicizing. Um, the investigation. I mean, particularly the October intervention. Man, I let's have it out. Let's about have that. it out. Yeah. Let's have it out. Are you do you are you defending him? Do yeah. you feel like I think it's completely defensible. Okay, so tell me. If he had decided to keep it quiet and it comes out after an election in which Hillary Clinton is elected that they have kept it quiet, it is it exposes the FBI and the country to a kind of partisan division and and fighting that would that was very obvious to all like like you could it's very predictable what would have happened 
And and it seems to me utterly reasonable for him to make a decision that this is going to come out. We know it's going to come out. Keeping it secret, um, although that it would be our normal practice to keep the secret, um, keeping secret in this particular set of circumstances creates the possibility of a kind of division and poisonousness and damage to the institution I love that would be quite devastating for the institution and for the country. And therefore, I'm going to open it up, even though I know it's going to have and, and would delegitimize a President Clinton in ways that would be extremely damaging to the country. And therefore, I can see that outcome. I see that I, Jim Comey, in October, see what that outcome would be. And therefore, I'm going to choose the other path, even though the other path has these this cascade of effects. So I would find that more persuasive were it not for the fact that there was another option, which was to actually do some kind of reviewing of these emails. So when Comey wrote that letter on the 27th, he said it was going to take weeks or longer to get any kind of handle on what they said. And that turned out to be utterly and completely wrong. They figured it out within a few days and it turned out that it was almost all duplicates. If he had just held his horses, he could have learned all of those things. And then the other thing I feel like is lurking in here and bothering. Again, that's a that's a that's a retrospective analysis. Y- yes, you could but it argue. It seems like kind of an obvious one well, if you're the FBI director. Well, like let's send some 40, analysts in there 40,000 see- emails that they were sitting on 40,000 emails and they just like he doesn't understand anything well, about algorithm. Like come on, they His argument. Like- I I think that you're on perfectly and we and this is where we're I think out of our depth because we need a technologist in here. Is that what we need? I mean, we oh certainly don't need a lobotomist. Can we not have a technologist in here? No, but I think this is because his argument is that what the reason that this was not just any old emails is that he thought that since intent was key, that the cache that was on um, Anthony Weiner's laptop c- contained the early BlackBerry emails in which it might have been possible that she was told, hey, don't do this. And she went ahead and did it. And if that, in fact, were the case, then, then it would show intent. And it turned out those weren't even on there, right? Right. And so the question is, is that something that could have been known in a relatively short period of time, which would have encouraged the holding of the horses? And I don't know. Do we know that, that that could have been found out quickly? Well, we know that in the end, very quickly, they went through all of them. So it right, seems like some some technologist gave have, very bad advice at that yeah. moment. And perhaps Comey could have checked into it a little more. But there's another point here that I that bothers me, because what Comey says about his July press conference, and I think also this letter, is this kind of fear of leaking, right? It was going to come out anyway. Jason Chaffetz had this line to the FBI, maybe people who were loyal to Giuliani and hated Clinton were disclosing all this information. And what Comey said to Stephanopoulos last weekend was people were going to conclude the system was rigged, but they concluded that anyway. I mean, right after Stephanopoulos played that tape, he has Trump on a campaign stage saying the system is rigged. They were going to do that no matter what. And so this notion that you have to defend the institution against very partisan leakers in the moment seems like a really bad road to go down for the FBI in general. And that is why they have this rule about not disclosing information um, during the course of an investigation or, you know, slamming someone when you decide not to indict them. Do we does it also matter that he made or says he made a promise to Chaffetz to Congress that if he found something that was new and material, he would let them know I mean, that he I th- put himself on the hook. And maybe that's a mistake. He shouldn't have put himself on the hook, but... Yeah, he should. It was a mistake. Yeah. But also new and material. I mean, again, I don't want to sound too lawyerly, but material. It turned out that those emails in October weren't material, and he didn't really give and put enough effort into figuring that out. I, Emily, I really think it is, it is 
quite, it, it's so easy with the, the retrospect and the, the knowledge of what damage has been done and the, the, the horror that is the Trump presidency and the continued attack on, on law enforcement to, to say that he, oh yes, just wait two days, wait three days. You know, it was, it was 10 days after the election. It, he was under enormous pressure. I agree, like the bowing to bowing and scraping to the demands of a GOP Congress that, that had made it very clear that it was, you know, they would punish him if he wasn't extremely uh, aggressive about Clinton. That troubles me. I, I just think like to, to it, there was one obvious outcome that he knew was going to happen if he kept it quiet. And there was another one which was had much less certainty and then if he was open about the rules. it. The second one involved breaking the rules of the institution on his own. Now, he has this whole other set of concerns about how he thought that um, Loretta Lynch, the attorney general, was compromised. And, uh, you know, her meeting with Bill Clinton on the tarmac, like, was a huge blunder on her part, right? I mean, there's a lot of blundering going on. I guess one thing I do perhaps agree with you about is that All of this, as frustrating as I find it, does not make me think that Jim Comey is a man of no integrity, that he did these things for partisan reasons, that he wasn't, he didn't have the best intentions of the FBI in his heart. I actually do think all those things. I just think he made like a dramatically wrong call. And I don't think it's only obvious in retrospect. I think breaking the rules about when you reveal details of investigation, there is a reason those rules were in place. And that's what Rod Rosenstein objected to in the letter he wrote excoriating Comey when Comey got fired. Of course, Rosenstein got played. Well, he got played. And and I thought that was an extraordinary thing in the interview for Comey to say basically Rosenstein acted dishonorably by by being the stalking horse for President Trump, which is is quite a claim. It's tough, right? Because we don't... we don't know that I would love to know the inside story of that letter and whether Rosenstein really understood how it was going to be used. Because when I read that letter on the facts, I found it very compelling. It's just that then to kind of turn it into a tool for firing Comey because you, you know, want to get him off your back, which Trump has said, you know, right. said. However, one thinks about those failings. Do they color and or uh, remove Comey's ability to have standing to make the other claim he's making, which is about the maintenance of standards in the presidency. And and this is the Ben Wittes writes this sentence, which I think is a an interesting one. He said, my concern is that an inability to see whatever errors Comey made as the good faith failings of a decent man trying his best under extraordinary circumstances affects the ability to process his interactions with Trump. Do you think that does both of you in the world and should it? I agree with that sentiment, I am finding it harder to feel in the wake of this publicity tour. I wish, I don't think I, we really learned anything. Maybe I already said that. I yes, wish, I agree with that. Right? And it does seem like vain and self-serving and publicity and book selling. It's not the right time for him to be trying to go toe-to-toe with Trump and it does diminish him in the way it always diminishes people when one by one they try to take on a bully. Unless you continually stand up at each point, you become desensitized to what's going on. But you choose your forum. Like when mm-hmm. he gets called to testify or when he's in court, there was something to go to the press, to have this be, you know, aired through Colbert and Stephanopoulos right. as opposed to in a court of law or through a deposition. It's just completely right. different. I feel like we're just seeing that over and over but, again in the last year and a half. And it's it's striking that he's fallen into the trap. The, the trap that he may be falling into with the book may very well be the same trap he fell into by not following the rules you are arguing that he should fall into before, which is kind of, yes, there are rules. Yes, you should do it this other way. But I kind of know 
which then sets up an interesting critique, which could be, okay, we have standards to protect us from people who don't believe the standards exist, but then also standards are in place for those people who are righteous but in error, which is to say we all know when we think we're doing something with God's own faith behind us and it turns out actually we're wrong. Yep. And even though and our with, heart is super right, in the right with place. With all yeah. the good intention in yeah. the world, you can do a lot of damage. Right. And so now, having said that, I am a huge fan of huge public conversations about standards falling and why they matter and why these. And I think what he's trying to do in the book, especially by laying out the case of his previous career, is saying, here's how these standards got me through all these previous cases I worked on. And here's the way that and if they fall away. That's going to have a cost that is huge and big, and we and we must treat this like a four-alarm fire. Therefore, I must be out everywhere selling this book and talking. Yes, but it's clearly not having the desired Intended effect. effect. Yeah. It's having and, the opposite effect. And of course that was going to be the case. Right. Like it's, right. Even Upton Sinclair, when he wrote The Jungle, said, I aimed at people's hearts and I hit him in the stomach. stomach. Oh. You know, even the great writers in a different yeah. time— People misunderstand books. We did get the Pure Food and Drug Act out of that, I think, out of the jungle. Uh, but right, I, but, they, but then they get it because people, we got the Pure Food and Drug Act because people are like, oh, my God, I don't want to put this right, stuff in my gut. Right. They weren't thinking like, oh, poor Jurgis. What was but his the name? Jurgis? Was that the guy's remember. name? But the, the Pure Food, all that food uh, safety stuff was very helpful. Uh, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't. It, wasn't so, it didn't point. bring us socialism right. and, workers and the rise rights, of yeah. uh, rise of strong right of unions. <laughs> I'm glad but that we're something. now having an, uh, uh, a praise session for the, I, I feel like Comey, Comey would have been better off had he just everything that Ben Wittes writes about Comey is so sympathetic and wonderful. And Ben is a much better advocate for Comey than Comey the, is for himself. Right. The vision of Jim Comey that Ben presents is much more appealing. Okay. Let us go on. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West... Listen wherever you get your podcasts. A viral video of the arrest of two African-American men in a Philadelphia Starbucks has prompted fury at the company and at the Philadelphia police and near universal, in fact, basically universal condemnation. You certainly know the story, but to quickly review, two black men entered a Starbucks near Rittenhouse Square, which is a rich and mostly white Philadelphia neighborhood, correct, Emily? Yeah, downtown, but the yeah. tonier part of downtown. They were going to wait for a third person to join them for a business meeting. They ordered nothing as they waited. One of them asked to use the bathroom. The manager, seeing they had not ordered, asked them to leave. They did not, but then called the police, uh, who arrived in force, arrested the two men, held them for nine hours without charge. This was this encounter was filmed and put up on social media. And almost as soon as it went public, the Starbucks CEO apologized. The manager seems to have been fired, certainly doesn't appear to be working there at that Starbucks anymore. The Starbucks executive chairman, Howard Schultz, declared that he was ashamed of what had happened. The company announced it would close 8,000 stores for a day in May to allow employees to participate in unconscious bias training. It also prompted a flurry of other stories most of which come without videos of African-Americans who have been expelled, arrested, otherwise made unwelcome in stores. Is there any explanation for 
for this happening. Well, I do think it's interesting to think about the conditions that gave rise to this. So if you have a policy where you're denying people access to the bathroom unless they've bought something, you're already setting yourself up. And I just have to say, I say this as a person who wanders around cities like in desperate need of stores that will let me use the bathroom like regularly, including New York City, including Starbucks in New York City. And there is this whole weird um, dynamic that we've been trained to feel like we're not allowed to go into the bathroom. Meanwhile, there's no bathrooms anywhere if you're in the urban core of a lot of places. So there's like a setup here to begin with. Um, That would be one way of addressing the problem. And then I think there's this question of what are employees told to do when people sit down and they don't buy something? So are they told to just like kind of keep an eye out for something that looks suspicious? Because if it's that subjective, then you're going to end up with the kind of racial profiling we saw here. If you have actual rules that you're enforcing, then you might be better off. Although I personally am not in favor of rules that um, treat stores as if they're some like sacred territory and you can't just like sit down and wait for someone for 10 minutes before you order coffee. But you think you should be allowed to sit down and wait for someone for 10 minutes before yeah, you order coffee? Yeah, I do. I mean, I guess I feel like these coffee shops are playing a role in American society right now where they've essentially become like the place where we all meet and mingle, and they want us there, right? Right. I mean, they're inviting that. And so then to get all strict with us selectively, it's always going to be selective who they're strict with. I was talking to a friend of mine who was just—this is in a totally different context, but it it was evocative, and he was telling me, because we're going to St. Louis, and he was saying, oh, you should go do the— the Budweiser tour, the Anheuser-Busch yeah, mm-hmm. brewery tour. Yeah. And he was saying, well, when I was a kid, it was so great because you could just stay. And drink you could just all stay and drink all you wanted. And yeah. so there was a... There Ooh, he was, he was talking about when he was on a like tour. The Guinness. It's the he Guinness was, tour. He was on a tour there and he was saying about how there's this group of winos who clearly, like you sit through the 90 minute. It's like going to a real estate seminar. You have to sit through the real estate seminar, but then you get to hang out at the hotel. And these guys just then spent the whole day drinking. And But he said, now they've changed it so you can only stay for 15 minutes. And it was... It's one of these things where probably 99% of the people who go on the brewery tour do not abuse it, and they would happily linger for half an hour, and that would be fine, and they would have good feelings. But because there are people who abuse it, Anheuser-Busch has said, you, you've got to leave after 15 minutes. So and the, you think the people who walk into Starbucks and don't right no, away buy something? Or no, 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 no. People who are homeless. And but the, just, but yeah, yeah, right. But then, it, and, I, and, I was, and actually I had this experience where I was walking into Union Station. I took a very early train this week up from Washington. And I went, so I was at Union Station at five in the morning and they're just like homeless people sleeping in Union Station. And it was discomforting. I didn't feel threatened. I mean, like, a, but it was disturbing to be in a public space where there was, there was disorder and like people, disorder is scary. And so you have to, how to balance people's fear of disorder with the our need to create public spaces where people are welcome and private spaces where people are welcome and also not be racist about it when you're doing it. It's, and so, just, it's like it's like it actually, it's a problem. I would also that argue, though, that well. there's a deeper structural problem yeah. about homeless people, which is that we're not providing enough affordable right. housing. Sure, and so sure. we see this yes. disorder yeah. on the, the te- this one end, but actually, yeah. like, it's attached to all this other And problems. so then yeah. the question becomes, is this an American story that happened in a Starbucks which is about everything from homelessness to implicit racial bias, or is it something specific about Starbucks that made this happen? I don't think it's specific to Starbucks. I think it has to do with coffee shops, though, and the role they're playing. So 
W. Kamau Bell, the comedian, wrote this great essay about getting kicked out of um, a bookstore cafe in Berkeley. In Berkeley, of all where, places. Yeah. Where because he was like showing something to his wife who happens to be white and they thought it was a book and they thought he was trying to sell her something. I mean, it just sounds like completely insane. But I, again, you're in this sort of... Um, private-ish space in which the regular behavior of black men is treated as threatening in a way that, like, it just wouldn't be for the rest of us. And it seems to be... I mean, what I find useful about all the moments when this surface, because this happens again and again, is it does at least get some people to, like, think, uh, right, twice, I hope, about the way in which they um, encounter people, the assumptions they make, Mm -hmm. and then particularly about calling the police, which remains something that I feel like is um, a big ramping up of risk and conflict, especially for black Americans that the rest of us need to really think hard about. Yeah, well, that takes implicit bias and basically hands it over to the state. Ask es- the state to interfere on your side, right? right? It, and, it, right, yeah. right. I mean, the other thing is, we, in the end, I'm really glad, by the way, that we don't know the name of the store manager, and I hope that person remains anonymous because I'm afraid of the like intense scapegoating that would come that person's right. way. I'm glad about all of that, but it's also I'm true sure that there were store policies. She was probably following. I, I doubt she was completely out of line with store policies. Right? Who exactly? I mean, I'm sure there is some defense, even if we don't agree with it in the end. But um, as I understand it she and other Starbucks employees refused to sign the police complaint. And that's why no charges were brought. Because actually in Philadelphia, there is this crime. It's called defiant trespassing. If you're asked to leave a private establishment and you don't, you are likely to get charged for a misdemeanor the way these two men were. And I don't think that's like a good thing either, but we should recognize that these Starbucks employees like did in some ways try to correct their own error. Why why is that not... I, I mean, I have a genuine question about this. If if you run a private business and people are coming and they are either disruptive or they're not customers and they will not leave, what do you, I mean, how is that not something that the police should be involved well, in? Well, maybe the definition of trespassing should have something like disruptive in it so that there is some action that triggers. I don't know. Do you think, I may, do you think the private store owners should just be able to throw anyone out for any reason? I think if someone is not a customer... And they are taking space or and they're taking business from you effectively by occupying space right, and someone that, won't leave. I, I mean, I think the idea that that person doesn't be charged and like go to jail is an incredible well, waste of, of resources. <laughs> but I don't I mean, what, what are the what are the other mechanisms? Do you want the do you want the store owner to physically expel them? No, I guess I wonder how much this really comes up. Like, do we really need the whole might of law enforcement behind this problem of someone's in your store and you they're not buying anything and you wish they would leave. Like most of the time, if you, right, shame does work in these situations. People get embarrassed and they will follow the rules if you just ask them. So the notion that like we have to have the cop standing there as enforcers yeah, is dubious point. That's to That's a good me. point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, sorry, going back to the, the, the coffee shops or public spaces now question. I mean, one of the things that's happened in, in American cities, the wonderful you know, revival of American cities has been the creation of all these mm. sort of third spaces. But that's like, there's so much privilege encoded in that. Like, it's really just for white people. Yeah, I mean, you're right. It does, it, if spaces are not public, where we have the expectation that they belong equally to everyone, then you are, you're creating a kind of setup for privileging some people over others. Right, but so what, how does that get solved? I mean, one way it gets solved is by making more public spaces that are nice, like having better libraries and community centers and available public bathrooms, but that doesn't 
What are the other ways that you solve it? I don't know how you solve it. Uh, sorry, I was just thinking about the the fact that this happens in a context. I'm just thinking about who has a right to beware and who gets challenged on it. Um, and that happens in small ways like at the Starbucks, but it also happened at a very big national level. And I think you you can't deny that it was contributory to the rise of our sitting president that he essentially suggested that his predecessor yeah. was not a legitimate occupant of the office and let me see your papers. Um, so how, So I guess there's the micro of how do you fix this in the moment in Starbucks. But there's also the macro, which is that we this is a big national problem. And in in this moment, how what's the smartest way to elevate those bigger issues so that we're not just figuring out, like, how do you take care of people who are there for too long and whether, you know, get us out of the Starbucks store. Right. So I'm just remembering recently I was in Brooklyn with um, a couple of young black men and they had to go to the bathroom (laughs) and so did I. And we had different ideas about where to go. They knew that they could go to McDonald's. Like mm-hmm. that was a place where they'd right, be allowed to use right. the bathroom. They That's wouldn't have a problem. So... Whereas I looked around and was like, thought that I had the right to go into any store. That right. And, really... that's, and I think actually McDonald's, um, I think that's really interesting. I think McDonald's, it's, it, this it's is like, performing a, a different role, right? Where poor people do feel like they can use the facilities McDon- and sit. But they sure. have rules about how they long you can stay. 15 minutes. Like right. in DC, they were talking, looking at this, where there's a coffee shop near McDonald's and the coffee shop sort of doesn't, expel people to McDonald's that sort of you can stay for 15 minutes. It's, it's really fucked up. It's fucked up. I mean, yeah. like I, I, this is, this is an area of privilege. I mean, like I'm one is constantly reminded of privilege these days because there's so many bad incidents that are coming to light. But this is one that I, I take advantage of coffee shops all the time. I basically work in coffee shops. You know, I always buy something, but that's also a privilege. It's like, I'm like, yeah, sure. Whatever. But also we I'll tend buy to like, buy things that are like under the cost of $5 and then stay for hours. Right. Yeah. Yeah, not me. I if I'm up twenty every twenty minutes, I buy something of increasing value. You must have like some stack of joking. drinks by you. <laughs> by the end of a by the end of a couple of hours, I'm buying entire coffee machines. At Starbucks is interesting in particular because it is actually it's unlike the kind of little twee coffee shop. Starbucks is trying to be a mass audience enterprise. It has thousands, thousands of stores. Not all of them are in the fanciest most gentrified neighborhoods, they want to be quite universal. And so they're much more a front line for these questions than a lot of places. They actually have to deal with it all the time. And so having seen how they tackle it will be And the, you know what they really could do is just open up the bathroom. I would be really happy just with that. Yeah. Right? They're making a lot of money. Like, should we have public bathrooms? Yes, we should. But we don't. We don't seem to be able to figure out how to incorporate that inter- infrastructure into our center cities. So like, how about Starbucks like steps up and let everyone use the bathroom and then maybe some other stores could follow suit and all of this like locked bathroom yeah. code this, code that, like could go away. I'd be so happy about so that. Much, it is like so much fucking misery is around bathroom use. Yes. That's right. <laughs> anyway. Um, well, this was, a, that was a sobering, the whole episode was really sobering. I, 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 um, it's, I know I'm very late to the game, but it, it really just hit me how hard, how much I take advantage of the this and how much it sucks to be an African-American man or woman or probably Latino in, in a lot of these circumstances. Let's go to cocktail chatter. When you're not having your Frappuccino cocktail, when you're not having your, your uh, what are the other 
Starbucky, your grande venti uh, martini coffee, John, what will you be chattering about? I will be chattering about two things. One is um, not so much a chatter, but a recommendation, which is to read Jeff Bezos's annual letter to shareholders, um, which uh, he published this week. It is a, um, I mean, it's just fantastic. I find him fascinating. Um, I'd also like to match his workout routine, but that's because uh, that's not the point of my conversation. It is basically a series of of um, approaches. Is the shareholder letter, the workout routine. No, no, the workout routine is not in the shareholder letter. It's about customers and people and organizations and learning, and um, it's just a fascinating look into the clockworks of both his brain, but obviously also Amazon. Um, and um, David talked uh, eloquently about the disruption. It, disorder makes you jumpy and uncomfortable, and I think that's one of the reasons a lot of people are um, jumpy and uncomfortable with the disorder in, in our White House. Whether you think the president is doing great things or not, it's uh, it's uh, unavoidable to uh, to draw the conclusion that it is a highly disordered White House. And reading this letter to shareholders is a, um, is a tonic in a sense of it is the considered thinking of a person who's been very successful installing systems, adapting those systems, and building a process for doing something um, that contributes to a lot of economic growth and personal growth. And uh, anyway, I recommend reading it. The other thing is from the Harvard Business Review. You know, you know me, can't get the Harvard Business Jeff Review. Bezos, Harvard Business Review. Oh, yeah. No, I am. Uh, I'm a fascinating person. Trust me. Sigma um, six. So anyway, I do actually I do actually really like the Harvard Business Review. But anyway, Sigma. there is a there is a um, there is a, a, a section in the Harvard Business Review always called Defend Your Research. And the one this basically it's it takes one of those um, studies that you hear about every 10 seconds about how this or that or the other thing is good or bad for you. And then it makes the researchers defend themselves. And the one that is in this this issue is about this study in the Netherlands in which 3,000 volunteers were asked to finish their morning showers with a 30 to 60 or 90 second blast of cold water <gasps> or, to, or to shower uh, and do this for 30 consecutive days. And then they were they were matched against a group that just showered as they normally did. Then the researchers looked at the work attendance records of uh, those people over that period. And on average, in all the groups that doused themselves with cold water, people were absent 29% fewer days when they had taken done the cold what? shower thing. I think they're all like struggling with PTSD and depression from having to do this torturous thing. Than the people who took their normal showers. And the conclusion upon <sighs> investigation and pressing of the... Of the um, of the researchers, two two things I found interesting. One is you don't have to go to the full 90 seconds. The benefits come at 30 seconds. And that it may not necessarily be a health benefit that you get. It's that you feel because your 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 nervous system has had to go into a crazy thing but to create the shivering as it's a result of the 30-second cold shower, that that enlivens the body in such a fashion that even if you are sick, you self-report that you're not. Um, so in other words, it doesn't actually make you healthier. It just makes you feel um, somehow more alive. So you then cause so you infection to your Right, colleagues. exactly. So you I, then, but this also, is a recipe for misery. I hate this study. But what about, I, I mean, 29% fewer days. Uh, Wait, that suggests they're like The people are missing days, huge like, amounts of right. work all the time well, for being sick. Apparently they I, are. What or, if I don't miss, I haven't 
Sure. Well, then, you're, work. then you're fine. So the twenty nine percent could be chance. like one less out of three. I do three. not. That, if you tell me that there's the you know the higher performance, more output, well, well, more you know like they they right. create well, more widgets, yeah, they write sure. more stories, yeah, then I'll well, listen. Here's the thing. Here's just the th- showing up at work does not seem an interesting no, discovery. You. Well, here's what's potentially interesting: you are uh, something of an Iron Man, and let's say there are those days you go to the work and you don't not go to work, but you feel a little low, a little crappy. What if the taking of the cold shower would on those days elevate you to a more uh, energetic I disposition? I think David wants to see those findings. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe he's not as sensitive. Well, Do you see what I'm saying? It's not I, I guess I'm. what I would say is there are plenty of tools I have in my own life to give me a little bit of energy, mostly involving if I'm feeling Bubble a little down, tea. I'll go for a walk. Yeah, sure. You know, no, I will walk take a walk around the corner yep. and that will put but the what, blood flowing. But what if you could add this to your regimen? And then you'd be even more in good shape. I would have to be convinced that I was getting some extremely concrete and significant benefit out of this. It sounds awful to me. Here's the final and true word about this, which is having tried this on a few days... It is torture and should not be done by anyone. It is you awful. Oh, it You've is been awful. So promoting it with such a straight face oh. for the last five minutes. Oh, it is dreadful. I want to know what diabolical person even thought that this well, was like a good thing to test. But I think it's. I, well, I think Why it's not a test perfectly like walking around the block? Well, or... because um, and I had to uh, test this theory. Not, I mean, the problem is having control over it. Because we, uh, the the apartment I'm staying in um, until we find housing someday in New York, um, Con Edison is apparently having issues and they don't turn the water back on until 5 a.m., which is when I leave <laughs> to go to the office. And so I had a couple of instances where I had to, and uh, sorry, they don't the turn the hot, the hot water, water back water. on. Okay. Oh my God. So I have had to, now taking an entire shower with, in freezing cold is really no picnic. Um, <laughs> no because picnic. If it's, it's like the, the worst thing ever. Yeah. They Although I have a low, more op- than anything. I have a low opinion of picnics. So, um, so anyway, but it's Ugh. it's uh, <laughs> so you like show up on the set of CBS this morning and you are either dirty <laughs> or, or, freezing. or freezing. No, no, no. I since I have a healthy sense of shame, I'm not dirty. I'm just really cold. And um, oh my god, I would totally be dirty. 100%. I don't. I don't. Um, I have people writing in to tell me about the color of my teeth and the kind but of they can't tie. Smell you? No, I understand that, but I guess and the kind of tie I wear. So, so you, you know, you really you got to be. Your teeth are not for somebody who is um, on television. You just have regular teeth. <laughs> so uh, anyway, so that's the story of my experiment with the Norwegian uh, freezing cold showers. Emily, what is your chatter? I am really interested in a letter that Eric Schneiderman, the attorney general of the state of New York, wrote to Governor Cuomo and the legislature this week asking for help. Schneiderman wants them to pass a bill that would clarify under New York state law that if, oh, just perchance, Donald Trump went around pardoning people of federal crimes, that Schneiderman could still indict them for state crimes. And the issue here is... so. There is a federal and every state has a double jeopardy clause. You can't get prosecuted for the same crime twice. That's great. That's really important. But New York also has this other thing called Article 40, which essentially says that if you the double jeopardy attaches when a defendant pleads guilty or goes to a jury trial or even the moment the jury is sworn. And there are exceptions in the rule, like if the case doesn't proceed because of a court action, but it never says in here that there's an exception if a presidential pardon is issued. 
Because surely, like, they just didn't think of it. And so uh, Schneiderman just wants Cuomo on the legislature to make it clear that um, anyone pardoned by the president of a federal crime law could not say that because of double jeopardy, they can't be prosecuted in the state of New York. But why would the state charge be this? Wouldn't the state intrinsically charge something different than the federal crime? Yes, but apparently the way this Article 40 is worded, it's not clear that a state crime that's parallel. Oh, right. There, there was in here too. If it's for the same actions, the same set of actions. Okay. So it's much broader than our usual notion of double jeopardy. Isn't there some theory that Mueller or federal prosecutors may not charge everything they have in part to leave that open for the states. Yeah, I mean, that is possible. Um, and it is another way of dealing with um, the president's pardon power and and potentially the constitutional problem of indicting the president under federal law, although um, that is a dicier proposition. I want to chatter about a great New York Times story about the Secretary of Interior, Ryan Zinke. It's it's interesting. It's a lot about Zinke's history. And in Montana, he was really known as an environmentalist and a conservationist within the state. He's come to uh, office as Secretary of the Interior, and he's really made a reputation for uh, opening public lands and diminishing protections on public lands, opening public lands to uh, natural gas and oil exploration in particular, and opening it to mining. But what the story points out is that in in Montana, under Zinke's secretaryship, he has protected lands in that state. So he's halted the sale of oil and gas leases near Yellowstone. He opposed some gold mining. He's created a national monument in Montana, and he's pushing to create another one, one that's just miles from his childhood home. So it's somebody who is, who is for the rest of the country, for thee, he's all like, yeah, let's, let's mine and, and drill and and but despoil public lands, but in my state. backyard, in my state, where I want to run for governor and I want to run, I want to build my my uh, political career. I'm going to protect the land because I know that it's right, and I know that's what the people of my state want. And so it's it's a minor hypocrisy. Um, and God knows I'm happy for the public lands in Montana to be protected. It's a beautiful state, and and I'm all for it. But it's it's depressing that he's acting in this way. That is our show for today. The GabFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Izzy Road. You can follow us on Twitter at, at SlateGabFest. Please, uh, we'll ask you for questions again this week on social media, and we would love for you to send us questions. For Emily Bazelon, John Dickerson, David Plotz, thanks for listening. Come to our St. Louis show, slate.com slash live, for tickets to our May 2nd show in St. Louis, and we'll talk to you before then. Mm-hmm.